one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today on Truth and Movies, French legend Claire Denis returns for the space oddity High Life. Someone had the bright idea of recycling us. Ryan Reynolds lends his voice to Detective Pikachu. Is the result a Pokemonstrosity or is it super effective? So you're a talking Pikachu with no memories who's addicted to caffeine. And for Film Club, it's a Denis double. We're taking a bite out of the 2001 erotic thriller, Trouble Every Day. No, Dr. Simono doesn't work here anymore. Also, we hear from the curator of London Design Museum's exhibition that shines a light on the work and craft of Stanley Kubrick. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. We have a bumper episode this week in store for you. Michael Eder here, sitting across from Hannah Woodhead. Hi. Adam Woodward. Hi. How are we doing, gang? Pretty good. Excited for this uh, pretty packed episode. We've got plenty to get through, haven't we? Lots of Claire Denis to talk about, and probably up top we should talk about why Claire Denis is in the headlines, shouldn't we, Adam? Yeah, so our very own Sophie Monks-Kaufman of this parish is has programmed a full season of her films at the BFI which I think is running throughout June mm-hmm. and there's everything there from High Life which we're going to talk about and Sunshine Inn um, which came out I think last year as well uh, over here um, going back to Beau Travai and White Material and some of her earlier films there's, uh, there's a couple that I've never actually seen right. rarely screened mm-hmm. actually I think in the UK and they're all on 35mm print so beautiful um, yeah head to the BFI website if you want to find out more and as on a previous episode, we've had Sophie talking about Bo Javai and Let the Sunshine in. Really, no one better to, <laughs> to put a season like this together, really. Yeah, and she's going to be there. Um, there's screenings and also, I think, some talks, and mm-hmm, she's going to mm-hmm. be there introing a lot of it. So if you want to kind of brush up on your Denis after this podcast, and I would definitely recommend popping down. So there's that season at the BFI, High Life in cinemas. Of course, High Life was the Little White Lies cover film. Uh, for the issue that's currently on the stands. And Hannah, you got to talk to Claire Denis just this week as well. Yeah, I did. Yeah, she was very tired. She'd just come from Nicaragua, so that was exciting. Just to talk to you. Yeah, you know, I felt honoured. No, she said that I asked her why she was in Nicaragua, and she was like, uh, maybe we'll shoot there. And, okay. and very, very sort of French. And like, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but no, she, was, she was charming, and we had a nice chat about High Life mm-hmm. and about Rock Pattinson. Oh, wow. And about Outcast. She's a huge Outcast fan, which I kind of. It, hadn't occurred to me that obviously Andre 3000 is in high life but I didn't realise the extent of her passion for the music of Outkast. Well, of course we'll be listening to some of that interview later on but first we're all off to Cannes next week on our own little jaunt not Ooh. as exotic as Nicaragua but off to <laughs> the sunny coast just by Nice. 
Oh, man, we were always excited to go to Cannes, aren't we? Yeah. I've never been. This is my first time. So I'm very excited. What do you think of forward to most, Hannah? Apart from the films, um, the rosé, the, the, the gelato <laughs> is fantastic out there. But mainly the films and seeing my friends. It's yeah. a nice opportunity to see our sort of global community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Should we pick one film from the programme we're looking forward to most? Yeah, I would say my from the main competition, uh, the one I'm most looking forward to is probably Jessica Hausner's Little Joe, which has got Emily Beecham mm-hmm. and Ben Whishaw in. Don't know too much about the uh, the story. Seems to have a kind of sci-fi, science-y twist to it. But she's a really, really good director. One of the only women in competition and across the programme, actually. I think her last film was Amorfu. Mm-hmm. She came out here quite a few years ago now. So it's yeah, exciting to actually see a new work by a director who we don't get to spend much time with. Hannah? I am super excited for the new uh, Bong Joon-ho joint. Yeah. He's back to his roots in a South Korean language film mm-hmm. uh, called Parasite. And... I was getting kind of like funny games vibes from the trailer. I don't think it'll be quite as like self-aware as that. But um, yeah, I think it's about a sort of poor family who fixate on this middle class family. And mm. yeah, it looks the best kind of films to me are the ones where you watch the trailer and like, I have no idea what is going on. So I'm, yeah, I'm super excited for that. And, uh, wow. Yeah. I'm going to just highlight a film that's maybe a little bit off the beaten track it's off in critics week one of the sidebars not in the main competition it's called i lost my body it's a feature length (laughs) animation and i'm just going to read the synopsis here a cut-off hand escapes from a dissection lab with one crucial goal to get back to its body as it scrambles through the pitfalls of paris it remembers its life with the young man it was once attached to wow is it is it anything like the the film idle hands Almost, yeah, it could be living in the same world could as Idle be. Hands, really. Will it have such, as, as, as rocking a pop-punk soundtrack <laughs> as that one did? That I guess, sounds great. I guess we should also note that um, there's, some, there's some pretty big hitters at the festival this year with oh, yeah. Terence Malick and mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino and <laughs> just the small matter of those to get through. But yeah, we'll, we'll be there, obviously, recording this exactly. podcast, doing some special dispatches mm-hmm. and, you know, tweeting and reviewing and reporting from the festival as well across um, Little White Lies channels. Mm-hmm. So new release episodes of Truth and Movies will be on hiatus for the next two weeks, but expect some, uh, some French-themed... Can themed. We'll get, the, get that music back that I like from the last year's. We'll change episodes. the logo back to that wonderful trickle or take, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we've got. Well, no, we've got. A, we've got a new one. Oh, really? Oh. It's less overtly French, <laughs> okay. but very evocative. Mm-hmm. Uh, very can. Very okay. very classy. Because uh-huh. uh, last year was just what I did in Photoshop. Cause we hadn't really? we hadn't made anything. So this is good for me to know. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that'll be dropping into podcatchers the world over from next week. Fantastic. But we should crack on with this week's films. Mm. Let's start with Claire Denis, round one for High Life. Robert Pattinson stars as the last surviving member of a crew of convicts sent into deep space on a science mission. He's also a new father, raising his infant daughter in complete isolation on the empty spacecraft as it drifts towards its final destination. Almost all of us are still alive. We were scum. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of recycling us. Serve science. Why do you keep taking this pill? I'll never have kids. Someday. 
That's a slightly over-the-top trailer clip, really. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, that, does that capture the feel of high life for you? How do we even describe what this film is like? Ooh, uh, that's, a, I, that's the first time I've heard that clip, and it's, it's quite something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, I saw this film for the first time back in September. I was at Toronto, where it premiered, and kind of, you know, I think we'd all got a, an idea of what the film was going to be, you know, uh, Claire's been working on this film for years it's kind of been her long gestating big film big movie and um we went in and you know packed out cinema and it it was kind of just like being punched in the face (laughs) in like a very nice way but like you know (laughs) no matter what we prepared for it was not like two hours of kind of just relentless sensory overload Uh and you know the kind of scene that everyone I think I was talking about the second the film finishing and uh, Toronto was just like unlike anything I'd kind of seen before mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. you know I, I've seen this film three times now so it's kind of like I've gained some perspective on it but I would encourage people to stop listening to this podcast right now and go and watch it and then come back and listen to us talk about it I think it's one of those ones where it benefits you to kind of just go in blind and not know what you're about to experience. This is going to start that spoiler culture conversation all over again. <laughs> it's not Anna. even about spoilers, because, you know, if we recall, mm-hmm. a friend of Little White Lies, David Ehrlich, massively spoiled this film on Twitter the mm-hmm. second it had premiered, and everyone was very angry about it. But it isn't really a film you can spoil. It's just more like the mood, I think, is, is mm-hmm. so kind of... It, it's nice to kind of not know what you're about to let yourself into. That's how I saw this, and it was... A complete surprise, even though I had seen... It's just a film, almost perfectly pitched for festivals, really, when you do get those people coming out and sharing the one or two (laughs) breakout moments, maybe. But then, really, when you watch it in context, it's part of this bigger whole. Adam, how did you come to this film? Is it much later after the Yeah, I came to the party quite late, actually. Um, Wasn't in Toronto. Mm. I'd missed a bunch of screenings around, I guess, Christmas time. Actually, only saw it maybe about a month ago. So we'd even worked on our print mm-hmm. issue, and, and that that was out. It got to the point where it was there was so much hype, and everyone had kind of been talking about it. So I just, I, I think I just said it in the back of my mind. I thought, right, I will catch this at some point, and I'm kind of glad I waited for that initial wave of hype to pass. But I still kind of went in, you know, knowing a lot about it, having read a few reviews, having obviously worked on this issue, mm. and was really amazed at what a kind of a unique experience it was seeing it. Even after all that, even mm-hmm. even with that kind of context and that having some preconception of what it would be. I mean, it's the first time I think I've listened to that clip as well. I don't really remember that voiceover mm-hmm. being part of it because I think so much of what she does brilliantly, Claire Denis, is, is building mood and atmosphere, not through dialogue, not through voiceover, but just by having the characters just exist in, in the world that she's created. And I think she's really brilliant at filming actors doing like fairly mundane routine tasks mm-hmm. in this one so you've got Robert Pattinson obviously as you say the lone survivor on, on the ship with his infant daughter but there are there are sort of flashbacks and the way it's edited you're never really sure what mm. you know time sequence wise it, it, it kind of jumps back and forth but for a lot of it he's shown interacting with um, the other crew members and Juliette Binoche is she's like a fertility scientist and I just love the scenes where Claire Denis shows them going around their daily chores and their duties on, on board this ship. And, and a lot of it is quite mundane mm-hmm. and weirdly tense and unsettling as well. Specifically some of those scenes set in the more present-day narrative in terms of the, the chronology of it, where it is Robert Pattinson with 
a baby. I didn't expect this film to hit so close to home for me where you're trying to do some daily chores and there's a baby crying in a in a crib somewhere <laughs> and you're saying, please, just let me handle this. I'll come back to you in a second. And I'd, I'd read that Claire Denis doesn't like to talk about this almost as a sci-fi film because she thinks this is so grounded in human emotions and experience and that, straight from the off, is there. Hannah, let's, we need to talk about these performances here. Robert Pattinson, who <clears throat> is going from strength to strength with every... Um, mm. work he's doing, working with some of the best filmmakers going. Yeah, Does this continue he, that trend for you? Oh, 100%, yeah. I think we're kind of lucky that we have actors like Rob Pattinson who are so willing to kind of put themselves out there in these roles which, in lesser hands, I think could be quite... They would struggle, but I mm-hmm. think he is a very... He's always pushing himself. I interviewed him for the last issue and talking to him, there is this sense that like he's never happy unless he's like making himself uncomfortable in some <laughs> way. So, you know, with this, with The the Lost City of Z, with his work with David Cronenberg, you know, he is consistently trying to find new spaces to move into. And in this film, you know, he, he looks old, you know, which for Robert Pattinson I think is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Talking to him, he, that's what he said. He said it's the first film where he's looked at himself and thought, oh, Christ, I look, I look old. <laughs> you know, he looks like a man who's been beaten down by the, the, uh, the life that has been sort of thrust upon him. And he has this kind of remarkable stoicism. There's so much in what he doesn't say compared to what he does say. He's a man of very few words. Yeah. But... There's also this delicacy, mm-hmm. and especially when he's acting with the baby, who is a great baby. I, we may hear this in the clip with Claire. She talks about the baby a little bit, so I won't go mm-hmm. on. But the way he kind of moves through this world is so deliberate, but also it just feels like he belongs there. It doesn't yeah. feel like he's acting, you know. It's, it's not a sort of self-conscious performance at all. We should tee up this clip with Claire then. We had a decent chat about sort of everything, about how much she loves uh, working with Julia and Mm. Robert and Mia Goth, who I think we have to talk about Mia Goth in this film because she's one of those actresses that always has the kind of supporting roles Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. she's, yeah, I think in this she's really good. Well let's just hear from Claire, I think you're asking (laughs) her about meeting this cast for the first time and then we'll come back and we can talk about Mia Goth. So the first time you met Julia, which I suppose was a long time ago now? Yes, a long time ago. And it's been a long time we were discussing about working together, but never happened. And then when I did let the sunshine in, she, we have the same agent, so she called me and she says, this one, no, it's for me, nobody else. <laughs> and I said, you're right, yeah. And then when I was in pre-production for High Life, I had cast Patricia Arquette in LA. Mm. And Patricia, suddenly, because the film was delayed and delayed and delayed, told me she was sorry, but she was not free at those same dates. So we were in Cannes with Juliette, with the film, and, and Juliette said, Mm-mm, I'm here if you want me. I could be the doctor. I will enjoy that. And I said, Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> I suppose when Juliet says, I'm here, if you want me, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not so easy, you know, when you cast someone like Patricia Arquette. The script was written with Patricia Arquette mm. in mind, you know. So I told Juliet, 
you have to give me a little time so I can transform you. Mm. So we have to work on that other woman. It's funny now for me because obviously I, I can't imagine anyone else now. It's, oh, me too. You know, it's me too. <laughs> so much more of him. <laughs> and Bob, um, when I spoke to him for our issue, he said he met you in LA after he wrote to you. Mm. And he said that uh, he was desperate to work with you. He thought, <laughs> I would say no. Because he, he, he thought, he was so desperate to work with me that probably I would say no. In fact, I, I felt so ashamed to realize he had in mind I would say no. I said, oh, come on. Don't judge me that fast, you know, <laughs> because me, I'm not judging you. I was afraid of you a little bit, but I would be more than happy. Let's do the film together. Hmm. And you'd seen him before and things, I imagine. Sure. Oh, <laughs> almost everything he, he did before. <laughs> Even in Twilight already, I felt for him <laughs> yes wow i was a teenager when those films came out and i was not a teenager but i was like <laughs> crazy it was it's I, I mean he's one of those actors that i'm so glad he gets to make films like high life and um, and other films he's is so great so talented mm. and he pushes and himself special yeah, and so nice as well, as I discovered. Oh, He's so, nice. so charming. <laughs> and as well, I think because you have the three sort of core characters are so different and their styles of acting are so different. And Mia got. When did you first meet her? Was it? I, I was despaired. I had met a lot of actresses, a lot, a lot, and I, I was never touched. I was, I told the casting director, nothing against those actresses, but not for me, not for me. And one day he called me and he says, you know, there is a girl in Paris. She's in uh, this hotel and she's waiting for you in the lobby. Would you like to go there and meet with her? So I took a cab. I went, I was at three meters, four meters, whatever. Love at first sight. I said, are you Mia? She said, yes. Okay. Can you stay one more night? She said, yes. Let's have lunch tomorrow. Let's drink wine together. And it was it. Nobody else. <laughs> Mia. I spoke to Robert about um, working with the baby and he said that... She's the daughter of Scarlett. Yeah. It's the daughter of his best friend. Oh, wow. Was that, was that why she ended up being in the film or was it just a coincidence? Mm. It, of course not. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> I, I was... Um, I urged the production to understand that the law that forced me to use twins for insurance thing in a film was a stupid law because me, myself, I had twin sisters, so I know that twins are not the same, you know? You cannot use one and then the other the next day because one is tired. And because they're separated, they're unhappy. So 
those babies were 12, 13 months. And, but the production was very strict on me. They thought it was like a caprice, you know. Oh. And then Robert came on a Sunday, I remember, and he, he told me, Claire, I'm worried. Those twins, are, they don't like me. I said, I don't like them. So he said, you know what? I know a baby girl. She's the daughter of my best friend. So we call in, in England. Robert brought the mother, the father, the baby girl to Köln in Germany by the first plane. And the production were obliged to <laughs> accept, you know. And it helps that the baby is so brilliant in the film as well. She's a great actress. She's not a great actress, she's a great baby. <laughs> she's a great baby and we all loved her, you know. <laughs> she was the right baby for the film. That's mm-hmm. a clip from Hannah <laughs> talking to Claire Denis, the French legend, about many things including meeting Mia Goth for the first time. We should talk about Mia Goth, who very recently, she was in Suspiria last year and The Survivalist a couple of years ago, and she seems to be almost going for the Robert Pattinson direction of trying to work with these great filmmakers. Is she succeeding in that regard? You said you want to talk about her. Yeah, no, I think she's one of those actresses I've seen a lot of things but never really kind of felt like she was doing anything that exciting. But in High Life, I think... And I think part of this is just, like, great casting because she's... You have Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche and then you have her as the kind of, like, other part of this... Trinity. The energy she has in comparison to Juliette Binoche and Rob Pattinson is so much more wild mm-hmm. and chaotic. And I think we probably heard in that clip that I said she's like a wildcat, and Claire's like, yes, she's like a little wildcat. And <laughs> that's totally how I would describe her. I think it's nice to see her get a role where it feels like there's more for her to do. Mm-hmm. I, the, last, the last thing I remember seeing her in, other than Suspiria, was A Cure for Wellness, oh. which is such a thankless role mm. for a female actress. Mm-hmm. I hope that she gets more roles like this, where mm-hmm. she gets kind of room to flex her uh, acting muscles. Yeah. I'm curious, with, with a film like this, we've, we've talked about how it's mood and atmosphere, performances, actors and creators doing great work. What do we take from a film like this? Oh, well, I was going to talk a, a little bit about the sci-fi elements, yeah. which I, f- I feel like we've underplayed mm. that slightly. And it, it is on its kind of most essential level, a a moody chamber piece, Mm -hmm. this sort of deep space fertility thriller, if you will. But the cypher elements, they really do stand out. And, you know, there's a sequence where she films someone going into a black hole, basically, which even just saying that, we we talked about spoilers, but you can't possibly spoil that scene for someone. Experiencing that, watching that, and watching what Claire Denis manages to do with, I'm guessing, a fairly modest budget. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about interstellar mm-hmm, budgets mm-hmm. Uh, here. And I imagine Chris Nolan, if he ever gets around to watching this, would just kind of weep uh, <laughs> at seeing what she actually manages to conjure and create with just tricks of light. And, and obviously there's some special effects going on as well. But it's one of those images 
it's very uh, visceral and haunting and actually really stayed with me after the film. Mm. So is it more about lingering emotions and imagery rather than it being a great comment on the human experience? Think about the tradition of sci-fi, Interstellar being this great odyssey but tries to be about a family. Is there something similar here? Just thinking about... You see the poster, you see Robert Pattinson in space. People might go along and expect it to be maybe a more mainstream film than it is? Or? Yeah, it's got a mainstream elements. It certainly mm-hmm. tips its hat to a lot of sci-fi that people will have seen and will recognise. It is a story about life and mm. creation and, you know, not, not just in, in, in a human sense, but the crew members on board this ship have cultivated this um, almost like Martian-esque little, I don't know what you call it, but it's, it's like a garden basically mm-hmm. uh, on board the ship. And it's this very organic, lush vegetation. And Andre Benjamin's character, you see him a lot of the time, he's just very carefully tending to it. It sort of emphasises how man and nature are kind of one basically and there's quite a beautiful quite a poignant scene where that manifests itself in quite a literal way I don't know whether you could call this a film about the kind of current environmental Mm. crisis which is kind of happening in the world right now but I think she's definitely channeling some of that We've talked about it in this segment as being so spiritual, organic and full of life, as we've said, with imagery that you've never seen before, gazing into the great unknowns of existence. It is also quite a provocative film. We've not touched on elements of this <laughs> that may shock or surprise some people. Should, going we, should we talk about the f*** box? <laughs> you got to say it first. You, you win a prize. <laughs> you, you, you get a bleep. So there is, that, there is this thread... You heard in the clip, she's taking their sperm. <laughs> yeah, so Juliet Binoche is playing something of a, of a mad scientist, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. It's unclear, I think, or maybe I didn't pick this up, but whether she's there by choice or whether she's also been roped into the... I am under the impression that she was forced to go right. because mm-hmm. she has committed a crime, yeah. which yeah. is revealed in mm-hmm. the film. So, yeah, all, all the passengers on this ship it's basically their punishment. They're kind of guinea pigs for this experiment. And I love that there's details like they're all wearing number seven on their mm. Um, mm. on their crew sweaters, and gives this impression that maybe they're just one case sample from from a, a wider study that's being um, mm. that's happening um, elsewhere and across the universe. And yeah, Juliet Binoche, she just really wonderfully embodies this very obviously intelligent and focused and and, and driven person but someone who's losing control basically of the the situation um, and is unable to fulfill or satisfy her own yearning desires and the the box plays quite an interesting it is quite a literal device in in the film Mm -hmm. but I think what it does metaphorically as well is is really interesting Hmm. it is also I think the, the part of this film which almost strays towards being so provocative and outre to be almost Funny, really, <laughs> in some of these flashbacks, some of those little scenes that we see, these snapshots, these characterizations, as people start to unravel, they're pushed to a to a sort of heightened plane that I think hmm, the f- box it's, itself. I mean, for something called the f- box, the way she shows how the characters use it and interact with it is not <laughs> super explicit. Mm-hmm. No. It's very artfully shot. And very weird, and yeah, mm. maybe somewhat provocative, but I don't think she is certainly not cheap thrills. I don't think it's very erotic either. No. Mm. I, you know, I think it's very mechanical. And there's, there's this line in the film, like early on, 
I think it's Robert Pattinson's character who says, uh, break the laws of nature and you'll pay for it, which is kind of like the thing that is running throughout this film. And they have, yeah, so the f*** box is where they kind of go to blow off steam, I guess. And yeah, there is this kind of, the scene itself is very, I I think it is quite disturbing, but Mm -hmm. that's more to do with like the sound design and the kind of the way it's shot and this idea of being in this space that you're not supposed to be in i.e. space and having this very carnal reaction to it and you know trying to satisfy these very human desires in a space that is not meant for human inhabitation it reminded me watching it of uh, Lucretia Martel's film Zama which Mm. I think does a kind of similar thing where you have this man in this landscape he's not meant to be in and the landscape kind of fighting back and kind of repelling him which I think is an idea that I really like I like these female directors exploring this idea of mankind going where it's not supposed to be and the environment kind of coming back against them and how man comes to accept the idea that they've messed up rather than the reality which is most of the time mankind doesn't admit when they've messed up (laughs) Well, let's admit uh, whether we've messed up now. <laughs> let's admit our scores now. Uh, Hannah, uh, well, let's go for In Anticipation, Enjoyment in Retrospect for High Life. It was a four in Anticipation just because I hadn't seen that much Claire Denis, but I was still pretty excited. It had a lot of hype at TIFF. And then a five and a five, I think it is a monumental achievement for Claire Denis. I think it's a film that we will still be talking about in years to come. It's a... Uh, fascinating addition to not only the sci-fi canon but the prison film canon Mm -hmm. and you know I think if Robert Pattinson continues the way he's going he is going to be a you know even more of a megastar in sort of five ten years time Adam I think top marks times three for me wow yeah (laughs) and just drop the mic after that maybe <laughs> Fantastic. For me, the, the hype played on me, and I was very excited for this. Five going in. I think it's a three and a three enjoyment in retrospect, wow. only because I wasn't transported in the way that this conversation uh, suggests you both have. <laughs> Maybe I should go and watch it two more times and see. But I will agree, Robert Pattinson is fantastic. Some of those framing scenes are incredible. What they do with the small budget, the production design, the music, the sound design is out of this world. Pardon the pun. <laughs> but that was High Life. Up next, we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous with Detective Pikachu. The first ever live-action Pokemon adventure sees a young lad teaming up with an intelligent Pikachu to track down his missing father. But this isn't your granddad's Pikachu. He's a wise-cracking super sleuth with the voice of Ryan Reynolds. Let's hear a clip. So there I was. Woke up. With a heavy case of amnesia in the middle of nowhere, the only clue to my past is Harry's name and address inside this hat. So, I made my way to the apartment, and that's when I found you and your stapler gun. Stop talking! You're a hallucination! You're a hallucination. So you're a talking Pikachu with no memories who's addicted to caffeine. I can stop whenever I want. These are just choices. Another round, extra shot. Black as night, thank you, sweetie. Look, you can talk to humans. I can talk to Pokemon. 
And if you want to find your pops, we're gonna need each other. No, I don't need a Pokemon. What about a world-class detective? So David Jenkins of this parish last week teased that this is the film that divided the editorial desk. So Hannah and I both went to see this, ironically at the BFI South Bank, which I presume because <laughs> it, it was shot on 35mm and it's only oh, really? one of the only places that has 35mm projection still. Uh, and I think I, on our WhatsApp group afterwards, I said it was the worst film of the year. And uh, Hannah was slightly more positive. Wow. So, <laughs> Hannah, we started with you for High Life, so I'm going to let Adam ha- say his piece first. Worst film of the year is, is quite low praise. <laughs> I mean, we're only, we're only at the start of May, so we've got, uh, we've got a way to go. Got all the summer to go. Yes. I just was expecting something, I guess, quite fun. I mean, when Pokemon first came out the video games i was i was at the age where you know that that hit at the sweet spot for me and, and i'm not ashamed to say I, I collected the trading cards and i played the video games i even went to the cinema to see pokemon the first movie wow. and was thoroughly underwhelmed by that at the time mm-hmm. as well <laughs> i don't think i've i've really uh, re-entered that world since but but was kind of quite prepared to was thinking if, if they've made this either a sort of epic adventure battle movie or just done something that was a bit more sweet natured and and for kids I guess Um, I think the problem for me with this movie is it doesn't feel like it knows what it wants to be and the story which is a very kind of boilerplate detective noir-ish story just only takes it so far it relies and, and, and leans so so heavily on Ryan Reynolds performance as Pikachu I think he's a really talented comic performer, certainly a more agreeable presence when he's doing that as opposed to like straight drama. But I wasn't a fan of Deadpool, and I think he is essentially bringing that same shtick to this. And it just didn't really work for me, unfortunately. And I think if that's the case and, and you, you can't get past that, there isn't really much of a film here to enjoy. The characters are pretty one-dimensional. The Pokemon characters maybe less so, and I think they're very well animated. Pikachu himself is super cute and looks very fuzzy, and I kind of just wanted him to be saying Pika Pika and not (laughs) talking like Ryan Reynolds, but, you know, there you go. There is a very funny scene, I think one of the scenes where there's actual kind of jokes that have been written and allowed to play out where they meet a a mime Pokemon. A mime Pokemon. Pokemon Mr. Mime. Mr. Mime. (laughs) And... uh, and 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 yeah, they're, they're basically trying to extract some information out of Mister Mime, and and that's that's played very very well actually. But beyond that, I just think there's a they, yeah they've missed the opportunity to a do a bit more with the Pokemon characters, like have them battle more or or have them be a, a kind of proper part of the story. They always feel like they're in the background, um, apart from obviously Pikachu himself. And yeah, I just think Ryan Reynolds, his delivery of the humour. Well, they're not really gags or jokes. It's just kind of this this very quippy, you know. It's it's quite a kind of American brand of humour, to put it bluntly. And I think it just it sucks all of the kind of narrative and dramatic oxygen out of the film. Every time he delivers a quip, everything just seems to kind of stop while mm-hmm. he's allowed to like have his platform. And yeah, it just killed any sense of like momentum for me. The human characters don't fare much better. I mean, at one point, Rita Ora turns up as like a scientist, uh, basically just to deliver some exposition. Most of the characters serve a function of just explaining what's happening. It is a film for kids on one on one level, but I felt like I was being talked down to like from the very first scene. <laughs> the first scene, Hannah. <laughs> Can you rescue Detective Pikachu? I liked it, okay? <laughs> you know, I 
Much like Adam, I was of the age when Pokemon was a thing and had all the trading cards and I had all the games and I went to see the first movie at the cinema and I really liked it. So I was well up for this. I think that Rob Letterman is a mad genius. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we look at his filmography from Shark Tale onwards and it's just like, what is this man's thing? And one of the things I love about Rob Letterman, he's a film purist, so... As Adam said, this was shot on 35mm, which is so preposterous for, for a film that is mostly animated to be shot on 35mm. But having seen it, the grain is lovely. I really liked it. And I think it adds something. It brings texture it's, to the Deerstalker. Yeah. Yeah. It's the idea there that because the animated characters are CG and, and they're sort of imposed onto the... Is it? Does the grain help kind of blend the... I thought it did. I thought it made it look a bit more like they fit into this world. But maybe I was just projecting because I enjoyed (laughs) it so much. When I saw this, I was with about four of my friends and we there's a great moment towards the end and we all just kind of like looked at each other and we're just like, what are we witnessing right now? What is this insane children's movie that most kids are not going to understand half the jokes in this movie let alone the weird things that happen you know there was a small child in front of us who was like mom can you explain this joke and then when something happens later on he was just kind of like oh and I was enjoying his reactions as much as I was enjoying the film but you know we came out and we were like amazing what a work of cinema and uh, in the days after that, when I came to write my review, I was like, oh, okay, I need to rein it back in. And once you think about it too much, I think the, the cracks start to appear. But on a very like basic level, I think it is, it's a very earnest film and it's mm-hmm. very sweet-natured. And there are, there are genuinely a lot of moments in it that I thought were charming. There's a, there's a lovely moment when Pikachu is kind of like sadly like crying and walking along a road singing the Pokemon theme song. And it's just like, you know, I would have happily watched two hours of just Pikachu being Pikachu. Maybe I would have enjoyed that a little bit more, in fact. Um, but Justice Smith, I think, is great. I, you know, I think it must be difficult to just act next to... I don't know if they had a puppet or something. Like it, it must be hard to do that. And I think he does have like quite good rapport with mm-hmm. Pikachu. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that Catherine Newton was really good as well okay. as the kind of like intrepid reporter. I guess. Is there a, an audience that you'd recommend this to, or is it just a sort of just go and see? Maybe because um, this is not a. It's a. It's an adaptation of a spin-off game, so it's yeah. not a direct Pokemon game, but it is informed by a knowledge of who all the Pokemon are. Yeah, I guess. Th- this is the thing. I do kind of struggle because even for me, who grew up with Pokemon and, and likes Pokemon as a kind of a thing. There are Pokemon in this who I guess are from later generations, so I was like, I don't know who this is, I don't care. I think they maybe should have just stuck to the original. But the, the red, blue, yellow. They've got yeah. I guess they've got to put something in for like mm-hmm. the younger kids who know like I don't know, that weird ninja Pokemon that turns up. No, this is the thing, and this is what when I was writing my review, I was just like, Who is this movie for? Because I still don't know. I still don't know who this movie is for, because Kids, I don't think, are going to be that interested in watching a detective noir about Pikachu. And most people my age are probably not going to be interested in that either. I think for me, the reason I enjoyed it so much is that nostalgia element. And this idea of like seeing a very cute Pikachu and going, oh, you know, 
it doesn't really have much kind of longevity. It's not a film that I would really go back to, and I don't think it will age well at all. Mm-hmm. But as a kind of like, you know, it's a Saturday afternoon and you've got a, a fiver burning a hole in your pocket, I think it's, you know, it's that kind of like throwaway entertainment bit in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'd, I'd definitely take something like this over 10 rubbish DC adaptations or Marvel adaptations mm-hmm. I think oh I don't disagree with that <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see that a studio film like this can just kind of feel warm and good hearted <laughs> and like they're trying to have a bit of fun with it mm-hmm. let's put some scores on this <laughs> Adam are you going to go from 555 to 111 for this <laughs> no not quite I'd say a 3 in anticipation probably a 2 in enjoyment and a one in retrospect. Okay. Um, I think actually what it's doing is there's something a little bit more sinister and insidious about it. And, the, and it's got almost this weird dystopian, like it's meant to be set in this future world where Pokemon and humans have become integrated, but all the Pokemon work in like service industry jobs or they're, you know, traffic signalers or... And I, I don't know whether they think it's this optimistic thing, but I thought it was quite bleak that these essentially wild animals have been captured and forced into these, like, <laughs> menial labour jobs. Also, quite jiringly for, for us here um, at Little White Lies, a lot of the film is shot in and around Shoreditch. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, yeah, there's very noticeable kind of Shoreditch landmarks, which, yeah, was quite off-putting for me. Took away my uh, suspension of disbelief a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen the gherkin, like, front and centre. It's like, welcome to Rhyme City in and it's clearly meant to be Tokyo, and it is very clearly Shoreditch. Was very distracting. Seeing mm-hmm. the, like thirty-five bus go past, and you're like, mm, maybe they could have done a bit more here. Like, it's a cheaper way to get to Tokyo if you can get the thirty-five bus <laughs> well, all the way, right? But yeah, I will say that was incredibly distracting for me as well. What's your scores, Hannah? Yeah, like a two in anticipation. I have to say those trailers did not do anything for me, and then maybe a four, three. Okay. I, I can't remember what I gave it on the website, but I, I did have a lot of fun with it at the time. But, I mean, I had had two coffees and it was a Saturday morning, so maybe that was why. But, you know, I think it is... It's one of those films where I hope they don't make another one. I hope that we can just, like... This was a fun thing that happened and we never have to do that again, mm-hmm. you know? But I don't think that's what will happen. This is the depressing thing, is it will make, like, yeah. a quarter of a billion at the box office and they'll do five more within yeah. the next three years. And the question is, would it be that he does, does he have a different... Is he going to get promoted? Is he going to be like... Chief Inspector Pikachu? Pikachu. Or could it be Fireman Pikachu? (laughs) Just him like trying different jobs out. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you you never know. Within six months, Adam, you might be wishing for Detective Pikachu when Sonic the Hedgehog comes out. Oh, God. Thank you both for your reviews of that film. High Life and Detective Pikachu both in cinemas this weekend. Up next, we're going back to Claire Denis for Film Club for Trouble Every Day. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So High Life has been touted by some as Claire Denis' first English language film, but 2001's Trouble Every Day beats it by almost two decades. This provocative erotic drama follows an American couple on their honeymoon in Paris, but the husband, played by Vincent Gallo, has an ulterior motive to track down a reclusive scientist and a mysterious woman, Betty Blue's Beatrice Dahl, who is hiding from the world. No, Dr. Simoneau doesn't work here anymore. I told you so in my facts. I run the service now. I really need to find him. Please. I really need to find him. Please. I know, he just left town overnight without a trace or a word of warning. He just uh, up and left. We haven't heard from him since. He just left with no number, nothing. No contact, nothing. No, not even a postcard. It's hard to believe. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. To tell you the truth, I don't understand what you're after. I mean, you work for a big lab. What could someone like you want with Seminole? He wrote a paper a couple years ago. My company's interested in that paper. You know the paper I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I threw it away long ago. A clip from Trouble Every Day there. Any listener comments, Adam, before we start talking? Yeah, we had an interesting one from our friend The Hipster Llama, who says, It's a film I certainly found affecting and troubling, but also really hard work. As a fan of the French New Extremity, I appreciate what it did at the start, but uh, it's not one I'll be revisiting anytime soon. It's an interesting one, isn't it? was touted very much at the time as part of this new French extreme horror wave. Rewatching it, it's not really that much of a horror film at all. It's this melancholic, elusive drama about shame and fetishes, right? Yeah, it's kind of pitched somewhere in between that and, and being an art house vampire movie almost, yeah. um, which I think that's a, certainly a read that's available, but mm-hmm. I don't think Claire Denis, she certainly doesn't force that as a kind of predominant theme. Um, mm. Vampirism, I think she uses that idea, she uses some of the iconography and some of the mythology of vampirism and and sort of infuses that with her own ideas about eroticism and fetishism and lust. Mm-hmm. Does Claire Denis' filmography as a whole as a whole split into these different categories where it feels like Trouble Every Day and High Life map onto each other quite well. It's about mad scientists and sexuality and humanity extremes in some regard. But then others of her films that I've seen, such as uh, Vendredi Soir, Let the Sunshine In, are much more sort of sweet and soulful spiritual films or erotic films as well. Yeah, this is definitely in, in the former camp and yeah. with, with High Life, as you say. Um, and there's some really fascinating parallels, I think, between Beatrice Dahl's character and Juliet Binoche's character even to the point that they both meet quite grisly ends but it's similar it's very hard hitting very visceral there's a wonderful scene 
sort of midway through where I think it's Nicola uh, Levachelle's character mm-hmm. he sort of tears down almost enraged with lust he like, tears down this th- these planks of wood over a door like Jack Torrance style um, <laughs> to get to Beatrice Dahl and they sort of proceed to have this very uh, intimate encounter and then she she basically just can devours him um, and it's, it's just so wonderful because you don't ever really know it's a very uncomfortable scene and, and it's not very erotic but it is very sensual as well mm. and Claire Denis really focuses in on, on these like carnal images and um, you know it's not overly bloody but you do see that there is some kind of gore and guts in yeah. there as well she's a real master of, of filming that level of intimacy up close and personal. It made me think what you said earlier about how she worked with quite a restrictive budget on High Life to create these visuals. This is a film which really only has that one scene of gore, but really if you analyse the scene, the prosthetics is probably one flap of skin <laughs> that Beatrice Dahl works over. and But that is more than enough to get that carnality over. And then the rest of the film is this sad, melancholic reckoning with obsession that Vincent Gallo's character has. And he may want to kill off that obsession, but it'll still be there within him. And it's one to sit on and think on. Hannah, do you watch this recently or watch this? What, what was your take when you watched it for the first time? I can't remember when I watched this for the first time. It was fairly recent. I think maybe just before I went to Toronto, mm-hmm. so maybe six months ago. I wasn't prepared for it to be as sad as it is. Mm-hmm. I think it is one of her more, yeah, as we've said, melancholy movies and disturbing on a kind of level that I wasn't, yeah, again, I wasn't like prepared for. I guess having watched like Bojirai and um, Let the Sunshine In, this feels very like separate, mm-hmm. I think, from a lot of her other films. But yeah, but I, I think definitely there are kind of parallels between it and High Life. I think the influence of it on kind of French cinema is really interesting. When I watched it for the first time, I was thinking a lot about the film Raw. Oh, and I think yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot of... The, it's very clear watching Raw that this must have been a kind of formative influence. And I think something that Claire Denis does really well is exploring female lust and desire in a kind of a way that we're not used to seeing. So I guess when female desire is explored traditionally, especially by male directors, it's in a very kind of like fetishistic way. I'm thinking about uh, blue is the warmest colour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the way that Denis does it, especially in this film, is so kind of unglossed and women are allowed to just kind of be disgusting and be angry and be sad. And, uh, you know, it's refreshing to see that I think it's something that still we don't kind of get enough of and yeah I think it's still kind of haunting so you know that scene mm. now never kind of really leaves your head after <laughs> after you've seen it you can't get over it it's amazing that she does what she does without kind of going all out in the way that some a lot of horror movies do where they think kind of the more you show the worse it is whereas this is like you don't even see that much but it's just you know I think Denis has this unique gift for kind of less is more which is definitely on show here Mm -hmm. more than anything else there's nothing more dated about this than Vincent Gallo being yes. <laughs> amazing that so she, 2001 to yeah. see him in the film amazing that she manages to make him quite palatable actually because he's, he's an actor who he just has this intensity about him no matter what he's doing it's quite awkward I think a lot of the time um, you always think there's something wild there's something going on behind his eyes that is, is quite unnerving and, and it doesn't always suit 
the role he's playing. I think the last thing I, I was trying to think the last thing I'd seen him in. Um, he has a, it, yeah. There's a film where he basically plays like a terrorist. Oh. It must be his last kind of major dramatic. Well, he, he has that flurry of films in the late '90s, early 2000s, and then yeah, I didn't see him in much for a long time. He had a cameo in. I can't remember which of the, the Julie Delpy two days movies it was. Oh, I think as, it might himself. Be that's as, so, him, that's as himself. So and, it, and it's like, oh, yeah, that guy who's not been in a film for 10 years just pops up. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, his comeback movie, I suppose, was Francis Ford Coppola's Tetro. Oh, of course. With yeah. Alden Ehrenreich, mm-hmm. Han Solo. Who remembers Tetro? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a little while I was comfortable. A- a- Adam was, did yeah. put his hand up when you said that, Hannah, <laughs> we should say for radio. <laughs> Adam remembers. <laughs> no, I, I quite like that movie. And, and then he did this film afterwards which I'm now struggling to remember the name of uh, but yeah I, th- I think he's not really been focusing on, on films and filmmaking um, which I think is is a blessing for all of us <laughs> such a unique <laughs> quality anyway that's Trouble Every Day we've recommended plenty of Claire Denis films there if we were going to recommend one from this season of the BFI or another film for people to check out what would we go for Adam? A film that I saw at the time when it was released and haven't revisited but really keen to catch up with is uh, White Material Oh, right, yeah. Which is Isabelle Huppert? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hannah? Uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with uh, Bo It's mm-hmm. It was, I think, the first of hers that I saw, and it's still, you know, it's uh, it's one of the greats, particularly for that end credit sequence, mm-hmm. which is just, yeah, chef's kiss. Oh, <laughs> it's perfect. so good. I would recommend Vendry Soir, which starts in a traffic jam and follows a woman on an erotic odyssey across one evening and it's just so <laughs> small and specific and such a wonderful ex- exploration of that character three good recommendations there for further Claire Denis explorations for you up next we have a treat an interview with the curator of the London Design Museum's Stanley Kubrick exhibition and to finish The Design Museum in London has just launched Stanley Kubrick, The Exhibition, which promises to tell the story of Stanley Kubrick exploring his unique command of the creative design process of filmmaking from storyteller to director to editor. Curator Adriana Grohn is here to tell us more. Adriana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I haven't had a chance to go to the exhibition yet. Adam has. He went to the press launch. But could you please just give us a sense of what we can see at the exhibition? A lot. We got about over 750 objects in the Uh show. But what we've done with this show is really focus on his relationship to London, mm-hmm. how he used London as almost like a blank canvas in making his films and the relationship that he had with design in his films together with all the people that he collaborated with, like Saul Bass. Mm-hmm. So we're starting the exhibition with a room that is dedicated to his process, his way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, we really wanted to show the visitors the methodology it's one of his sort of most iconic ways of working, the time that he dedicated to all of his films, the research, whether it was months or sometimes years that he spent gathering all the details for mm-hmm. a film. And after that room, we, we dedicate different zones to each of his films where a visitor would travel throughout the exhibition, kind of discovering all the many worlds that Kubrick created. And are you focusing on specific films or the whole span of his work, or is it from a certain one film onwards to Eyes Wide Shut? Or? All of his main main feature yeah. films are in there. We have also have a, a section dedicated to his photographs, because he used oh, to be right. a photographer mm-hmm. for Look magazine. That is on the first level of the atrium of the museum. And we got some of his earlier films, like The Killing or Killer's Kiss. But really, the it starts with Paths of Glory, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is his main, like, biggest feature film. 
up to uh, out of our shop. Right. And I, I know listeners are probably very aware of this, but he has this incredible archive, doesn't he? And it's, it's housed at Elephants and Castle in London, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of his research of the every step of the process from how to strike the right prints and manage marketing materials and so on. When you're presented with such a huge archive, how do you boil down what you're going to focus on? The work of the creator, I suppose. Tough question. I mean, it is. it was amazing to go to the archive and to go through all of the boxes. I actually really started focusing on the element of London, uh, looking mm. into, for example, Ice White Shot, mm. which contains over a thousand of photographs of just doors and gates, even a whole panorama of commercial roads mm. that we are actually showing in the, in the exhibition. Right. I did the same for Barry Lyndon as well, because he used about 20, 21 different film locations throughout the UK. So that was sort of our starting point. We really started with, I think, our location being in London and then the design element. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the exhibition is sort of a recurated exhibition that already exists, mm-hmm. but the touring exhibition only contains the, the tiniest of fragments of his, <laughs> of his archive, probably just the tip of the iceberg. Right. Um, and then obviously, with our guy being in, in Elephant and Castle, we mm-hmm. had the unique opportunity to actually gather more in material and as well as from the Kubrick estate. Oh, fantastic. So we went to Hertfordshire to meet with the family and got oh. some real gems for yeah. the exhibition as well. So what did you get specially from them then, can you say? I can, oh. yes. I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, well, we got some of his trunks that he used for moving from the US yeah. to, to the UK, which are really, really stunning. And his Steinbeck editing machine, oh. for which he, I think he worked on Full Metal Jacket on that one. Wow. But that's never been shown before. Mm-hmm. And it's really because he, you know, he was involved with each stage of the process of filmmaking, mm-hmm. of making his films, and especially editing. It was very particular how he edited his films. So, yeah, to have his actual editing table there, along with some of the original film cans, mm-hmm. is, is quite spectacular. That does sound spectacular. So, Adam, you, you went there last week. You, you got a glimpse of this. Any highlights, comments? Yeah, I was going to ask you what your favourite um, piece in the exhibition is, because yeah. one thing that stuck out for me, weirdly, it's quite a mundane object, but in the Barry Lyndon section, there's a case with some candles in, and it talks about, obviously, how he shot and, and lit the film quite naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the night scenes, using these candles that he had specially made with three wicks in so they would burn extra bright, right. but completely useless as like normal day-to-day <laughs> candles. And I just thought that was such a fascinating detail, quite a small thing to include, but, but yeah, really yeah. showed the level of, I guess, research and, and, and you know, the technique and the process. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered if you had a, a personal favourite. Oh, like a many. I mean, I have to say, Barry Lyndon, with, with the whole, you know, the, the Zeiss lens that was originally developed by NASA, to have that in the film, to have that in the exhibition, I think Barry Lyndon, the way the technology was used and the camera equipment is quite extraordinary. I like that you picked up on the candles. Absolute nightmare for continuity, anyways. But I would say one of my one of my favourite items... It's actually in the first display case if you just enter the exhibition and it's an item that I found in the archive. And um, so he was a mad lover of of stationery, went to his local Ryman's probably weekly, if not bi-weekly, to test out a new paper. And there's one page of his own sort of headed Stanley Kubrick stationery and with a typewriter he's typed, this is how it types. And with a fountain pen it says, this is how it takes ink. I think that's just so beautiful. <laughs> it just shows his care. It even goes into the type of paper he uses as his own letters. 
I think that's one of my favourite items. That sounds fascinating because the films are so monolithic and Kubrick is this you know, legendary, iconic figure. There's something so human about that that you, you can find through this exhibition, I suppose. Kubrick the man as, as well yeah, as Kubrick yeah. the movies. Yeah, and I've, I think that was something that we really wanted to show to people, especially because we had the fortunate opportunity to work so closely with the family to kind of dive into who he was. And, you know, a lot of people describe him as this sort of obsessive genius. And yes, he was a genius. But for me, what really shows throughout you know, the research that we've done is the care that goes into each detail. And our detail item would go into one of Kubrick's films, Unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love that. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Is there one film from this span that you've covered that, that you find more fascinating than the others through this research? I have to say, it is, it is Barry Lyndon. It's a film that keeps surprising me. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier, he wanted to film everything by candlelight mm-hmm. to create the most authentic picture of the 18th century, so no artificial light. And to do that, he had to get a different lens because the lens at the time were not, were not efficient. And then he stumbled upon this lens that was originally developed for NASA to do space photography. And, I mean, if you look at the picture, I don't know if you've seen Barry Lyndon, mm, yeah. but it's like each picture, each image is almost like a painting. And also they really strive to... They mimic 18th century paintings. There are a few paintings in the National Gallery that are very close to some of the scenes. Mm-hmm. I know. I think that the time and the dedication in making this film as authentic as possible is, I think, yeah, that's one of my favourite moments, yeah. yeah. I think we're in agreement that Barry Lyndon is, what is the hidden gem in the Kubrick crown, isn't it? We discussed it on this podcast only a few months ago, didn't we, when it had its release. Adriana, thank you so much for your time. So this exhibition is at the Design Museum in London. It runs until September? The 15th, yeah. Yeah, and I hope it goes well. I hope thank I you very can much. make it down there. <laughs> Please thank, do. <laughs> thank you so much. And that brings this bumper episode of Truth and Movies to a close. Next week, as we said, it's not a traditional episode, but we'll be reporting from the Cannes Film Festival. You'll hear from us and other Little White Lies faithfuls. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Leader. As always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.